Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. These are just a few things that support the biblical claim to inspiration, but I want to come now to the proof of the Bible's claim to be the Word of God. What is the proof? Well, God built proof into the biblical text for us, and the proof that the Bible is the Word of God is predictive prophecy. The Bible tells the future with 100% accuracy. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Ephesians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 20, in a message titled, The Foundation of the Word. Now, here's Pastor Brian. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or as I said, uh, God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this is what we believe as Christians. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture. But some people would say, well, that's just circular reasoning. You're using the Bible to support your argument. You're using just because the Bible says it's inspired. You're saying, well, the Bible says it's inspired, therefore it's inspired. But it's not really like that. You see, because the Bible does make the claim to inspiration, but the claim itself is not sufficient, really, is it? There's, there's got to be some evidence that, that there really is inspiration. A person can claim anything, but is there proof behind the claim? But you see, the Bible, the beautiful thing about the Scripture is it doesn't just make that statement, the Bible is inspired, period. Don't ask any questions. Don't research it. Don't try to find out if it's true. Just accept it. But the Bible's not like that. The Bible tells us that it's inspired, but then we have many infallible proofs to support that claim. And so that's what we want to do in the remainder of our time. I want to show you the proofs for inspiration. So we'll get to the proofs lastly, but uh, because there's a, God has built into the Bible proof of its inspiration. That's the beautiful thing about it. He's built it right into the text itself. But before we look at the proofs, let's look at the arguments. And there are many, but I'm just going to uh, give you four arguments in support of the divine inspiration of Scripture. So these arguments that I'm going to present right now, they do not prove inspiration, but I think they bolster the case. They lend support to the argument. So the first is the indestructibility of the Bible. Do you know that the Bible, like no other book in history, um, there, there have been more attempts to destroy the scriptures than any other book ever, and far beyond any other book. More attempts by emperors and kings and rulers and political parties and so forth, all, all the way back to biblical times right up to the current time that we're living in. It's a very small number of books that remain in circulation for 100 years. If you find a book that was written over 100 years ago today that's, that's still being sold, that's a rarity. But to find books that survive uh, for 1,000 years, that is minute. The number of those are minute. Now, uh, there are some. You can, you can find some today. There, there still are a few. 
but none of them have ever had the kind of opposition to them like the Bible has. Now, you could go to Barnes & Noble after church today, and you could pick up Homer's Iliad. Uh, you could pick up the writings of Plato or Aristotle. Uh, you could pick up the writings of Augustine. So those books have survived more than a 1,000 years, but there was no great effort to wipe those books out. There was never a time when an emperor said, we've got to get rid of the Iliad, Homer's Iliad. We've got to destroy that. We've got to find all the copies and burn them. Uh, but that's exactly what the Roman emperors did with the Christian scriptures. So here's the amazing thing about the Bible. It is today in the 21st century, the most distributed and the best-selling book of all time. It remains. Year after year, the Bible is the number one bestseller. And that just goes on and on and on. And it not just being sold, but distributed and, and sought after. So the indestructibility of scripture, the, the many efforts to destroy the scriptures have failed. I think that that's a, a significant argument in favor of biblical inspiration, although it doesn't prove it. But there's also the historical veracity of the Bible. The historical veracity. In other words, that the Bible is accurate historically. Now, this uh, many intellectuals, many uh, scholars over the years have uh, come against this idea and said that the Bible is full of historical errors. And many, many attempts have been made over the past couple of hundred years, especially to disprove the scriptures and to show that they were historically inaccurate. But as a Time Magazine article said some years ago, after more than two centuries of facing the heaviest scientific guns that could be brought to bear, the Bible has survived and is perhaps better for the siege. Even on the critics' own terms, historical fact, the scriptures seem more acceptable now than they did when the rationalists began their attack. You know, there were uh, all of these kinds of things that came out like, uh, oh, the Bible mentions people that never existed, places that never existed, peoples that never existed. And, uh, you know, these were the claims and the academic world, of course, bought into it and supported it and promoted it. And oftentimes many just average Christians uh, were duped by it and some lost their faith over it. Uh, but all of these things have been refuted. You know, they said there was no such thing as Pontius Pilate. It didn't exist. And then they discovered a stone with Pontius Pilate's name written on it uh, right in the very area where he was the governor. Uh, they said that there was no nation of the Hittites. That was a fictitious nation that the Bible writers just made up as part of their mythology. Then they found the great empire of the Hittites. They said there, uh, Moses could never have written the, the books that are attributed to him because there was no writing at the time of Moses, they said. And lo and behold, they found a massive library that uh, predated Moses by 600 years at least, going back to the time of Abraham. And so these are the kinds of things. And as the article here, quoting from Time Magazine, says that even on the critics' own terms, historical fact, the scriptures seem more acceptable now than they did when the rationalists began their attack. So there is not one thing in the Bible that anybody has ever proven to be wrong historically. All kinds of 
theories about why this, you know, couldn't be the case, but no one's ever proven anything. And archaeology has largely disproved all of those arguments that they brought forth. So there's the historical veracity of the Bible, but there's also the scientific reliability of the Bible. Now, the Bible is not a science book, and aren't you glad for that? Because just think if you had to read a science book every night to get your faith strengthened. I mean, that would be like hell. That would be absolute (laughs) torment to have to read equations and things like that. No, it's not a science book. That's not its intention. But no scientific observation in the Bible contradicts known scientific evidence. That's a fact. Every other ancient religion had certain unscientific views of astronomy, medicine, hygiene, and a number of other things. But the Bible is absolutely free from those scientific absurdities that were common among the other religions. Now, again, the Bible's not a science book, so it doesn't lay things out scientifically necessarily. But when the scientific age came and they began to discover certain things, they discovered things that the Bible had already stated to be the case thousands of years before. For example, 3,500 years ago, Moses said, the life of all flesh is in the blood. Moses said that 3,500 years ago. The life of all flesh is in the blood. Scientists discovered that in the 17th century. 3,000 years ago, David said that the sun is moving in a circuit through the heavens. We read that in the 19th Psalm this morning. Astronomers discovered that in the early 1900s. They didn't realize that the sun had its own orbit. 2,000 years ago, Paul spoke of creation being in the bondage of decay. We call that today the second law of thermodynamics, which was understood in 1850. So you see, there's, there's no scientific discovery that's ever contradicted what the scriptures say. And the scriptures uh, anticipated centuries before, millennium before, they anticipated scientific discoveries that would come later. And so fourthly and finally here, the unity of the Bible is another strong uh, support or strong argument in support of the claim for biblical inspiration. The unity of the Bible. This one's pretty fascinating if you, if you really think about it. Now, the Bible, the Bible's one book, right? And when you, when you read the Bible, if you've read through the Bible, you know that, you know, this is, this is one book. But it's made up of 66 books. But it's not only made up of 66 books, it was written by over 40 different authors at different times over a, approximately a 2,000 year period. 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages spread out over a close to 2,000 year period And yet, it's one book. When you read the Bible, it's clear it's one book. It has one doctrinal system, one moral standard, one plan of salvation, one program of the ages. There's nothing like this anywhere ever in history. And really, the unity of the scriptures is, in a sense, it's, I mean, to me, it's almost miraculous. If you took 10 North American scholars today, and you... Um, They all spoke the same language. They all spoke the common English language. And you gave them 10 controversial topics to write on. 
what, what do you think you would end up with? I, I guarantee you would not end up with a, a harmonious result. You wouldn't end up with uh, a consistency. You know, oh yeah, this is one book, although it was compiled by 10 different authors. No, you'd have so many different opinions. But this almost miraculous unity of the Bible. So the unity of the scripture, uh, the scientific reliability of the Bible, the historical veracity of the Bible, and the indestructibility of the Bible. These are just a few things. There's, there's more. We don't have time to go on with it. But these are just a few things that support the biblical claim to inspiration. But I want to come now finally to the proof of the Bible's claim to be the word of God. What is the proof? Well, God built proof into the biblical text for us. And the proof that the Bible is the word of God is predictive prophecy. The Bible tells the future with 100% accuracy. There's nothing like it. There's no other book. There's no person that's ever lived. You know, most uh, recently, probably the most famous name that we've known is Nostradamus, you know, that he supposedly predicted history so accurately or the Mayans predicted history so accurately or whatever. But we've seen over and over again that that isn't true. But the predictions in the Bible have come to pass with 100% accuracy. But this is what God declared in Isaiah 46. He said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. The challenge that God put forth in the days of Isaiah to the gods of the nations, the false gods that the other nations were worshiping, the challenge was, tell me the future. You say you're gods, tell us what's going to happen and then we'll know that you're gods. But the Lord declared, no, you can't do that. That's something that God reserved for himself to be able to predict the future. And the Bible is a book full of predictive prophecy. And we have a general idea, even today, we have a general idea of where things are going in the future. And we see things around us that are developing just as the Bible 2,000 years ago, at least, said that they would. But let's look at a few things. There's prophecy concerning the Jews. Many, many prophecies all throughout the scripture concerning the Jews, concerning uh, the fact that they would get carried off to Babylon, for example, prophecies there. The fact that they would be carried off by another nation, which would end up being the Romans. The fact that they would be brought back into their homeland after many, many centuries of being dispersed and that they would have a major role at the end of the world. Uh, Jerusalem being the burdensome stone to all the nations. That's where we're at today. But Jesus in Luke 21, listen to what he said. He said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus spoke these words in approximately 32 AD, 38 years later, exactly what he said would happen, did happen. And nobody at the time could have ever imagined that that would have been the case. In the same context, they were the disciples with Jesus, they were looking at the magnificent temple that Herod had built, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and they were admiring it. And Jesus said, 
as they're looking at that, he said, you know what? Not one stone is going to be left upon another here. They couldn't believe it. What do you mean? How could this thing even be torn down? That didn't seem possible. And even at the time, politically, uh, the Jews had compromised with the Romans and they lived in, in relative harmony. So there was nothing to indicate at the time that Jesus uttered these words that the destruction of Jerusalem was just 38 years away, but it was. So predictive prophecy. But predictive prophecy, much of it, if not the majority of it, has to do with the Messiah. Hundreds of messianic prophecies are given in the Bible, and these messianic prophecies have been fulfilled by Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't just come as this person that just showed up in history, said, I'm the son of God, worship me. Some people think that. You go, well, why should we believe that Jesus is the son of God? He just showed up and said he was, and everybody says, yeah, he's the son of God. No, it didn't happen that way. Hundreds of predictions preceded his arrival, going back hundreds and even thousands of years. That's what was happening. So we have to realize that these, uh, these prophecies, they're the built-in evidence. Now, it is mathematically impossible that these things could have been predicted and fulfilled coincidentally. Now, they say that some 300 prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus during his first coming. But let's just take 100. If we take 100, what is the likelihood that uh, one person could come along and by coincidence fulfill just 100 of these prophecies? How likely is that? Well, Dr. Charles Ryrie said, according to the laws of chance, it would require 200 billion Earths populated with 4 billion people each to come up with one person whose life could fulfill 100 prophecies accurately without any errors in sequence. Yet the scriptures record not 100, but over 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming alone. So you see the, the, you know, the, the probability that it was just a coincidence that this guy, Jesus, showed up and fulfilled these prophecies, it's, it's not possible that that could have happened. Mathematically, it's impossible. Pastor Chuck used to use the illustration from Peter Stoner to illustrate the number of one in 10 to the 17th power would be like taking the, the state of Texas and filling it three feet deep. You remember that illustration with uh, silver dollars. You mark one of the silver dollars. You get a giant mixer. You mix them all up. And then you take a guy and you blindfold him and you spin him around and get him real dizzy. Then you send him out you know, to find the, the, the marked coin. And the chance that he would pick up the right coin on the first try is the chance that somebody could come along and fulfill by coincidence, the prophecy. And that was only with 10 to the 17th power. And that was based upon a smaller number of, of prophecies. But the larger the number of prophecies, the, the greater the number, uh, the probability became. And I think they took it out to 10, one in 10 to the 48th power. And that's probably the number that Ryrie is using here where you've got, you know, 200 billion earths and so forth. Pastor Chuck used to illustrate it with the, um, trying to use the illustration of the atom and so forth. But the point is obvious that Jesus came and fulfilled literally exactly the prophecies that were given. The prophecies about his um, ancestry of the tribe of Judah, 
uh, belonging to the family of David, born in the city of Bethlehem, born of a virgin, coming at just a, a very specific time in history before the destruction of the second temple, betrayed by a friend, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, hailed as king, crucified, uh, nails pierced, hands and feet, put in the, the, a rich man's tomb, risen from the dead. The, these are the things. They all were predicted and Jesus fulfilled them exactly. So you see, it's prophecy. That's the built-in proof. How do we know that this book, the Bible, is God's word? Because he built in proof. He told us the future. He told us what was going to happen. And it has happened just as he said with the Jews. It's happened just as he said with Jesus. And we see it developing that it's happening just as he said toward the end of time. We're seeing the world, everything coming uh, together just the way the scriptures said that they would. And so you can have absolute confidence that this book is God's word. It is inspired by God. It is without error and it is authoritative. It is what we are submitted to. And we need to know that for ourselves because there's, like I said, there's a constant attack against the authority of scripture. Uh, but we need to know that also to be able to help other people. We need to know it to be able to defend the faith, give a defense. There's a huge attack today against the Bible because of what it teaches. And people don't like what it teaches, so they try to discredit it. Say, well, it can't be God's word. So we have both the personal need to know it's God's word, and we have the personal responsibility to be able to speak to others and to contend with them for the faith, showing that this is indeed the word of God. So in closing, I want to quote to you from the, the Prince of Preachers, Charles H. Spurgeon, and, and listen to what Spurgeon said. And this is not hyperbole on his part because this is the heart of this man, Spurgeon. If you've ever read him, you know that this is absolutely exactly how he felt. And I agree with him. He said, if you wish to know God, you must know his word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he works by his word. I hold one single sentence out of God's word to be of more certainty and of more power than all the discoveries of all the learned men of all ages. I would rather speak five words out of this book than 50,000 words of the philosophers. Remember that our Bible is a blood-stained book. The blood of the martyrs, the translators, and the confessors is on the Bible. The doctrines we preach are doctrines that have been baptized in blood. Listen to what he says finally. If the whole of us went to prison and to death for the preservation of one single sentence of scripture, we should be fully satisfied in making such a sacrifice. That's not hyperbole. Spurgeon believed that absolutely. And it's true. It's true. Five words are of more value than 50,000 words of the philosophers. This is God's word. And we can bet our lives on it. We can stake our lives on it. And all of the attempts by men to refute it and to deny the historicity and all of those different things, they've all continued to fail and they will continue to fail because God has spoken. And we have it right here in the pages of the scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 
and we can entrust ourselves to the authority of the word and have absolute confidence that it's going to carry us through life and it's going to bring us through even death itself. For the month of November, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. Isolation, distance, and conflict during these trying times have caused countless people to feel lonely and depressed. But for the Christian, the friendship of Jesus reaches even our deepest loneliness, and we can allow darkness and despair to drive us directly to Him. And when we come to Him, Jesus is able to match our every need with His mercies because He moves towards us with compassion. If you or someone you know needs to know the heart of God, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ephesians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.